invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. So far in chapter 5, Luke has been cluing us in into the, the mission of Jesus. We've seen that Jesus has come to this earth to cleanse the hearts of sinners. We saw that with the narrative about Jesus cleansing the leper. We saw that Jesus has come into this, this world with the authority to forgive sins. That he is not mere man, but he is of the same substance of God himself. This evening, we see that Jesus also came into this world to pursue sinners. To pursue sinners. Please turn your attention now uh, to the read of God's holy word. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Jesus came to this world to pursue sinners. That's the main point, the main theme that we see in our text this evening. Jesus came to this world to pursue sinners. Now I imagine that upon hearing this, you will think that this is quite a basic and obvious point. Jesus came to the world to pursue sinners. However, because it's, it's so basic and obvious to us, it runs the risk of losing its extraordinary significance. This is arguably one of the most remarkable statements, remarkable themes that Scripture teaches. Jesus came to pursue sinners. One of the great benefits of reading the Gospels is that they give living color, life and flesh, to the doc doctrines, the truths that we profess. In fact, we've seen this already in, in chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel. For instance, we learn that Jesus came to this world to cleanse the hearts of sinners. And Luke taught this to us. Through this narrative of Jesus cleansing a leper. We've learned that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And this was taught us. This taught to us. With this narrative of Jesus healing a paralytic. And now we come to our text this evening and we see that Jesus pursues sinners. And this truth is taught to us. With this narrative of Jesus feasting, dining. With the very worst of society, Jesus pursues sinners. My hope and prayer is that this basic point would be enriched and deepened for us this evening. As we consider how extraordinary it really is that Jesus pursues sinners. 
Well, how, you may ask, how does Jesus pursue sinners? That's a good question, a question that we will explore here in the next 25 minutes or so. Like us to consider then that Jesus calls sinners and Jesus associates with sinners. Jesus calls sinners and Jesus associates with sinners. So first, let us consider that Jesus calls sinners. And notice that this narrative begins with Jesus encountering a man named Levi. This Levi was someone who worked as a tax collector. And Levi is likely the same person as Matthew. The person who may have, have, have uh, written the Gospel of Matthew. Now I'd like to point your attention to how Luke introduces this, this passage. He says that Jesus comes across a tax collector named Levi. I think this is very intentional. Luke doesn't say a Levi who was a tax collector. He begins with Levi's occupation, a tax collector named Levi. You have to remember that the first century world in which Luke is writing was a plural culture. So the first audiences of this gospel, after Luke would have gotten done writing it, the first audiences of this gospel would have heard it rather than, they, they would have heard it with the ear rather than reading it with the eye. They would not have encountered it privately, personally, through reading. They would have encountered it corporately and publicly through it being read to them. And so if you're hearing something read to you, it's very easy to get distracted. And Luke doesn't want his audience to be distracted with their knowledge of Levi. If he would have began with Jesus encountering Levi, who was a tax collector, these individuals likely knew who Levi was. And their minds would go down this rabbit trail of everything they know about Levi. They forget that he was a tax collector. Luke wants to emphasize this point that Jesus is encountering a tax collector. That's what he wants to leave in the minds of his audience. He's encountering a tax collector. Now, as you may know, a tax collector was notorious in the first century world. They were employees of the Roman government to collect taxes on their behalf. And of course, everyone hates taxes. It's sort of a universal truth, no matter your time, place, or culture. But the Jews of the first century world especially hated taxes because it was a constant reminder to them that they did not govern themselves. This was a tax of the Roman government. It was a reminder that they were being ruled and governed by a foreign power. The Romans were in control. Furthermore, these tax collectors had a reputation of not just collecting what was the, the government was requiring, but to charge extra and to pocket the rest. And these tax collectors were wealthy individuals. And everyone knew it. Everyone knew the corruption, extortion, but no one could do anything about it. So Levi, Matthew, was, was not a popular person. In, in this first century context. And so Jesus, he's walking along, likely the Sea of Galilee, that's, that's likely where this tax booth of Levi was located, and, and Jesus walking along, and what we would expect is Jesus to hardly even give him the dignity of a glance. But that's not what Jesus does. 
He does what would have been the unthinkable. He turns to Levi and says, follow me. That is, be my disciple. I would imagine you could almost hear the gasp of the crowd, the gasp of those who were in attendance. I would imagine uh, Peter, James, and John, these disciples that Jesus has just got done calling a few passages ago, I'm sure they themselves were perplexed. What is he doing? Imagine they were thinking, you know, I know Jesus, we're not, nothing to call home about. We're just common, uneducated fishers. But really, Levi? You're calling him to be one of us? Part of this inner circle? Do you know his reputation? Do you know what he's, he's done? But equally remarkable is Levi's response. He doesn't say, you know what, Jesus, I, really, I'm, I'm flattered at, at the call, but do you know my... Do you know the money I make? Do you know the lifestyle I maintain? I'm good. I, I don't think I need to leave everything at all. But he does just that. He immediately, almost without thinking, he stands up and follows Jesus. And remember, Levi is on the job here. He's at his tax booth in the middle of the day. People are around. And he gets up, turns his back on this tax booth, which would have signified money well and follows Jesus. Leaves everything and follows Jesus. This is remarkable. On many levels. And when we read that Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus, we, we have to be careful not to interpret this in an overly rigorous or a rigorously literal way. Which can sometimes be easy to do. I don't think Levi was literally leaving everything in his life as he sought to follow Jesus. In fact, we'll read in the next verse that he goes back to his house and holds a feast for all of his friends. He didn't leave his home, his domestic life. If he had a family, I'm sure he didn't leave his family. Rather, he left his tax booth. He left that, everything that had to do with his simple occupation and life. He left that behind. He turned his back on it and sought to follow Jesus. That's what it means when we read that Jesus, that Levi stands up, leaves everything. That is, leaves everything associated with this tax booth and follows Jesus. This is a great picture of repentance. A great picture of repentance. Repentance literally means a change of mind even a change of direction. What we have here is, is repentance being illustrated in the life of Levi. As Levi literally stands up, turns his back on this sinful life and occupation and follows Jesus. Seeks to obey Jesus and his rules and commands. That's what repentance is. Standing up, turning one's back on sin and following Jesus. This is a word that we all need to hear. This is a word that applies not only in our initial conversion, but something that applies to us each and every day. In fact, next week in our Heidelberg Catechism, we'll seek to understand uh, what repentance really means. It's something that we embrace each and every day. Each and every day we are called to turn our back on our own tax booths, 
as before. Our own sinful practices, habits, attitudes, words, and endeavor after obedience to Christ. This is the life of the Christian. So brothers and sisters, what, what sin, what habits, what practices, what attitudes, what ways of thinking even, do you need to turn your back on? What, what sins have been plaguing you this past week that you need to rise up, turn your back on, and seek to follow Jesus, his laws, and his rules? This is the life of discipleship, the ongoing life of discipleship. So we see here that Jesus pursues sinners by calling sinners into a life of discipleship. Now at this point, we may expect that Jesus preaches. He would call the, the likes of, of someone who is a tax collector, a notorious tax collector. But Jesus now takes it a step farther. As he doesn't just preach to them, he associates with them. He takes his pursuit of sinners to a whole new level. Jesus associates with sinners. So Jesus associates with sinners. Now what happens next is Levi got up from his tax booth, is, is following Jesus, is a disciple of Jesus now. Indeed, a momentous occasion in his life, a huge decision in his life. And he goes back to his home, which likely would have been quite nice, quite large, and he was a tax collector. And he prepares a great feast and invites all of his buddies over. His buddies, no doubt, were other tax collectors and, and sinners. Sinners referring to individuals who were of the same category of tax collectors. Same reputation. Same sort of uh, ignorance or rejection of God's law in many ways. And he invites all his buddies over. And Jesus as well. It's striking that Jesus attends this feast. Jesus attends this feast in the home of Levi with all of his notorious friends. And the Pharisees, no doubt, were not at this feast. They would never have gotten within um, you know, a mile of his house. They hear about this. I'm sure whispers were spreading across town at, this, at what this controversial teacher has been doing. He not only has called Levi to be one of his disciples, but now he is in the home of Levi with all the buddies. Buddies who I'm sure were drinking lots of fine wine, and probably too much fine wine. And the Pharisees go to Jesus' disciples, who also were likely there. They're like, what's going on with your teacher? Why was he at Levi's house? Is this true? I think we need to give them the benefit of the doubt. I would imagine if, if we were there, we probably would have similar questions and concerns. You know, in that culture, sharing a meal with someone expressed a level of acceptance of that person or that group of people uh, who you were sharing that festive meal with. So they were concerned, is Jesus condoning the lifestyle of, of, of these tax collectors and sinners? Is he okay with, with the sin in their life? 
overt sin in some ways, I'm sure, in their life. Furthermore, the, the, the proverb, the maxim, uh, bad company corrupts good morals, is something that's sort of basic common sense wisdom that's known really to all people. You're thinking, is Jesus corrupting himself by doing this? Is he going against basic common sense wisdom in going to this, this feast, this festive feast? of Levi and his friends. It's very interesting in the text that notice who responds. This question was asked to the disciples of Jesus, but Jesus himself answers. The disciples don't answer. Now, we don't know why the disciples don't answer, but I don't think it's improbable to speculate that they themselves may not have known. And furthermore, they themselves may have been asking the same question. We're just as perplexed as you guys. This day started with with Jesus calling Levi to be one of us, and now we're in his home. We don't know what's going on. They're probably asking the same question. Jesus' response is to compare himself to a physician, to a doctor. If you look in your Bibles, at the end of verse 31 to verse 32, uh, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's think for a few moments about this analogy that Jesus is using. A doctor, a physician, they don't go through years and years of education and training so that they can help those who are healthy and have no medical issues. And the reason why they go through that many years of training and education is so that they can help the sick, those who have complicated issues and diseases and ailments. And so Jesus didn't come into this world because we are all righteous. He didn't come into this world because we're all spiritually healthy. He came into this world because we are spiritually destitute, unhealthy, sick, as he himself said. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All. Every single human person. Even the Pharisees. On a secondary level, I do think that Jesus is also wanting us to know through this this mission statement of sorts. That he didn't just come for those who have an outward semblance of righteousness. The Pharisees had an outward semblance of righteousness. He didn't just come for those who have, you know who struggle with respectable sins as of them. He came for even the worst of society, the so-called sinners and tax collectors. Jesus is indeed the great physician. Furthermore, Jesus says he's come to call sinners to repentance. He's here answering the objection that the Pharisees know about the right. He's not condoning the sin that would have been present in, in, the, in the life of, of Levi's friends. Rather, he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to turn their back, as Levi did, on their sinful lifestyle and ways and practices. Jesus here strikes such a great balance. He doesn't, he doesn't tell Levi, and I'm sure these other buddies who, who he was interacting with with the goal of repentance, he doesn't tell them you need to clean up your act first. Then you might be considered as a candidate to be one of my disciples. 
And, on the other hand, he doesn't, he doesn't say, you know what, you don't need to change. As a matter of fact, they thought, why don't you fund our ministry? You kind of like your, what you're doing on the side. He doesn't do that. He goes to them in the midst of Levi's sin, in the midst of these individuals' sin, and he calls them to himself and effectively says, I'm going to change you. Communion, discipleship with me, will lead to change. This is, this is the call of discipleship. This is how Jesus associates with, with sinners. Now, as the church, as the New Covenant church, we are called, the Bible is very adamant, that we, that we are to embrace a certain separateness from this world. A certain, a certain distinctiveness from this world. We are called a city on a hill. We are called to be a light to this world. But, like many doctrines, we also are called to a healthy balance. We're called to be engaged. We're called to balance those, those, call, those commands with the call to be engaged. It, it can be tempting for us, in the midst of a, a secular world, to, to embrace that separateness. And that separateness leads to a sort of Christian ghetto whereby we don't really interact with unbelievers. We don't interact with the so-called tax collectors and sinners of, of this world. I mean, would you have, if you received an invitation to Levi's little feast here, would you have accepted it? Or would you have thought of a convenient excuse of why you're busy then? We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And yes, we're, we're called not to be corrupted by the world. But yet we still have to be engaged. That's the balance we're called to. Be distinct, but yet present. And one author on this text has made a very striking, very striking point. He notes that in the Old Testament, when that which is unclean comes in contact with that which is clean, who wins? Well, that which is unclean wins, because that which is unclean corrupts the clean. What happens when Jesus comes into contact with that which is unclean? His cleansing power ultimately wins. We have seen this in this chapter. As Jesus cleanses the leper, Jesus heals the paralytic, Jesus calls a tax collector into his inner circle. Jesus' cleansing power triumphs over sin, triumphs over that which is unclean. So when we, as the church, seek to engage with this world, we do so with this cleansing power of Christ. We do so with this power which is able to make that which is unclean clean, that which is sinful pure. Or to use the analogy that Paul used in Ephesians 5. When light and darkness come into contact, what wins? Light wins. Light makes that which is dark light. Therefore, we are called to be a light to this world. We are called to go forth with the light of Christ, which makes the darkness light. This is how we then are called to associate the so-called tax collectors and sinners with the cleansing power of Christ, with the light of Christ. 
I do believe that Luke, here in this passage, wants us to be astonished to the degree in which Jesus would associate with sinners. That he would not just call Levi, but then go into his home and have a festive meal with him and his buddies. We should be astonished. But this theme is only going to continue as it reaches its climax on the cross. As Jesus not only associates with sin, that is, comes into close proximity with sin and sinners, on the cross he becomes our sin. He takes every single one of your sins, not just your, your respectable sins, but even the sins that make you blush. He takes those sins upon himself on the cross and pays the penalty, the just recompense that you deserve to bear. And he takes that penalty upon himself so that you can now stand before a holy God, a pure God, Confident and assured with a free conscience because you know that Christ has not just associated with sin but has become your sin. That's the good news of the gospel. So, beloved in the Lord, Luke here is wanting to teach us that part of that mission of Christ is that Jesus has come into this world to pursue sinners. And I hope and pray that. You were, oh, your imagination has been awakened a bit more about how extraordinary this doctrine truly is. Jesus has come into this world to pursue.